This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now?, the podcast where there is always a portrait of Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth II on the wall. There are no complaints. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Nina Schick is a commentator and author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi, Dorian. Uh, Danish broadcaster claimed last week that the country was used as a European base for a US spying operation against European officials, including Angela Merkel, circa 2012. This was uh, the sort of thing that came out in the, the Snowden leaks. Why is Denmark uh, spook central? There is actually a reason why Denmark is a hotspot, a spook central. Um, and when we think about communications right now, we especially digital communications, we kind of tend to think of them happening in the ether, right? Just around us somehow. But there is actually a physical infrastructure underpinning the global communications network. And in, in the case of Denmark, you have the submarine cables that run the communications from Northern Europe to the United States, because these cables sit in Danish territorial water. And when the United States realized this already as far back as the early 90s, it jumped on the chance to collaborate with Danish intelligence. So Danish intelligence has long been data sharing with Uncle Sam. Uh, Of course, the optics of this is just embarrassing as hell, given Denmark's geographical location, cultural, political and financial links to Europe. Um, But In reality, this collaboration between Denmark and the United States intelligence in particular is probably only going to augment in the future, particularly as the strategic importance of owning these waters where these submarine cables sit is going to become more relevant as the geopolitical competition around the Arctic starts hotting up. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive of Bessel Britain, back in self-isolation, just as the weather gets good. Hello, Naomi. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Yeah, no, it's uh, quite clear that cases are rising and the test and trace apps are in full force because I am, yeah, I'm in good company with lots and lots of people I know who are getting pinged and saying you've been in contact with someone who's tested positive. So, yeah. Everyone, please keep vigilant. Um, Benson Britton noticed a scoop by Peter Foster in the FT about the cost of Brexit to the service sector. And you picked up on a line further down the piece that COVID actually cushioned the blow uh, this this last year by making it harder for financial service companies to physically relocate, obviously. Um, so should we expect it to get a lot worse that as soon as um, as soon as people can move? Look, it, it's probably not going to get better. Um, And that's because uh, the TCA doesn't cover services at all. The mood music is we're not going to renegotiate and we're not going to help you out on services. So businesses are saying, right, okay, well, you know, we we hope that there might be some leeway here. Oh, no, apparently there's not. So fine, we'll vote with our feet. Um, And at Best of Britain, we have our Trade and Industry Commission, and they took evidence from financial services uh, companies last month. And, and, you know, the the view of the TCA is is pretty damning. But most financial services companies have got the balance sheet strength to move jobs and talent around the world and protect themselves from it 
in a way that uh, obviously smaller organizations can't. But let's remember that there are huge numbers of financial services jobs outside of the city of London. There are big chunks of it in Dorset, Swindon, Midlands, Northeast, Northwest. So this isn't going to help rebalance the economy. And, and for those people who voted for Brexit because they kind of wanted to uh, skewer London and the southeast for, 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 for benefiting at the expense of other parts of the country, this probably isn't going to help with any of that. And it's going to help lots of those places first and worst in times of job losses. But it isn't just financial services. Travel, transport, IT have also, of course, taken big hits. Um, and, and that's because the TCA doesn't cover services. And in 2019, let's remember, the UK ran an 18 billion surplus in services trade with the EU against a deficit of 97 billion in goods. So the TLDR version is Brexit is still very shit for Britain. There are still no sunlit uplands. And yes, COVID has hidden some of the worst impacts of it. I would say the good rule of thumb is don't vote for something just to fuck another part of the country because it will come back and fuck you. <laughs> Indeed. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. A furious Andrew Lloyd Webber has promised to reopen all his theatres without social distancing measures on June 21st, even if the government has to postpone the final unlocking, which would, of course, mean he could be arrested, um, and he's well up for that. Do you have any sympathy for Jesus Christ super spreader? Well, you know, certainly I would pay good money to see Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser being dragged off stage by the Met. And, you know, some of, some of those songs are, are a crime against music. I mean, let's face it, Jellicle songs for Jellicle cats. You know. <laughs> anyway, but seriously, I do feel for the performers and the actors and the singers and, and dancers, less so for Lloyd Webber himself, because he is very rich, although... To be fair, he has remortgaged his home to keep his theatres going. I'm guessing that theatres with a lot of state funding won't do this. That that opens up the possibility of a kind of rogue populist league of West End defiers, I suppose, which which try to open despite everything. And that, that could prove quite interesting. This week on the show, The Atlantic magazine publishes a major profile of Boris Johnson. Does it shed any light on the PM's befuddling popularity and his vision for Britain? And as the G7 prepares to announce a coordinated minimum tax rate for multinationals and data giants, we look at how hard it is to regulate companies that are bigger and richer than some countries. Plus, with the rescheduled Euro 2020 just around the corner, we'll be discussing the politics of football on our extra bit for Patreon backers. First this week, Atlantic writer Tom McTague has published a long profile of Boris Johnson in the magazine titled The Minister of Chaos. Boris Johnson knows exactly what he's doing. Does he, though? Roz... What did it tell you uh, that you didn't already know? Or perhaps what did it clarify? Not a lot, to be honest. Um, there wasn't a great deal there. I mean, it was written, I suppose, for an American audience who may know less about Boris Johnson and be watching him less closely than I have for the last decade or so. But there were no startling revelations. Uh, there was He was certainly very articulate, I suppose, and that seemed to take the Atlantic by surprise. It didn't take me by surprise, though. Did you buy the theory of the, his popularity put forward here that by highlighting his flaws, he can therefore get away with anything because it's sort of it is like nobody's perfect. Um, and should should we try that? Yeah, there's certainly an element of that to his popularity. He we've seen him screw up countless times in different ways, uh, both in enormous ways, killing arguably thousands of people and in very minor ways as well. It's 
you, it's it's almost priced into Johnson that he will sometimes fail. And there have been there's, there was quite a convincing analysis of his character, The Guardian, published a few months ago, suggesting that he was he had some of the qualities of a clown. That you were almost waiting for him to trip up. And certainly, there is that element of his personality. Um, Naomi, in our sister podcast, The Bunker Daily, tortoise journalist Matt Dancona said that Johnson once called him 15 times to complain about an unflattering article. Um, do you think... Uh, I mean, I'd get a restraining order. Do, do you think Take's phone will be blowing up after this article? I doubt Tom's going to be getting an invite to the Johnson summer party. Oh, really? Do you, do you think? Like Ros, I don't think there was anything that... I didn't know, but it was incredibly brutally written and I think helped me to better articulate his failings and personality and idiosyncrasies. I mean, it's not a flattering piece, oh, um, I don't okay. think. But uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, I say that the, the point about, you know, him, him not getting the invite because it, the, the, the culture that Johnson's building in Number 10 and, and in his team is, you know, very much you're either with me or you're against me and there just isn't room for anything that that isn't totally fawning um and we've been seeing that a lot this week lots of the the rebels um around the australia deal and international aid uh, and things like that and you know lots and lots of rumors of um you know that the the ministers and junior ministers that aren't backing him are going to get the chop so I, I just don't see why he wouldn't sort of apply that similarly to to journalists that don't write him up in the most flattering light Nina, when Johnson talks about overcoming uh, defeatism, he references John le Carre's novels from the 1960s. It's essentially talking about a kind of post-imperial malaise or declinism. And only, you know, Thatcher doesn't get a mention. And obviously she talked about overcoming that very same malaise 40 years ago. So it's like the time frame just seemed bizarre to me. What exactly is he trying to get back to? What is the glory days of Britain? for him? Well, I think the beauty of him using this rhetoric is that it doesn't mean anything in particular, right? And that is why this rhetoric, which promises to restore a nation to its former glory, um, is so politically effective because it can mean many things to many people. I mean, just how many times have we seen this trick being deployed in political history? Only recently across the Atlantic, make America great again, MAGA, right? Championed by none other than Donald Trump. Actually, Ronald Reagan promised to make America great again. And he repeatedly used that slogan during his 1980 presidential campaign. He even had the slogan on merch long before uh, you know, the red Donald Trump MAGA hat came to be what the phenomenon that it is now. Moving into the 90s, even Bill Clinton used the phrase. I mean, he literally said, we can make America great again during his presidential announcement speech in 91. And similarly, if you look at British politics, you don't have to look too far to see all the leaders who promised to make Britain great again. One example, of course, is uh, the young parliamentary candidate who made a big promise to her would-be voters in the winter of 1950. After years of decline and incompetence under a Labour government, it was time to make Britain great again. And that parliamentary candidate was none other than Margaret Thatcher. So to me, this heralding back to this former glory day using this rhetoric is emblematic of Boris Johnson's style of leadership, right? Feel good populism, and it can mean many things 
to many people without actually having to mean anything really. Because, I mean, it's interesting you talk about Reagan using it. And obviously Reagan had that sort of very sunny uh, morning in America vibe. Um, whereas Trump's Make America Great Again was kind of like it's shit now, you know, American carnage, far more sort of angry. You know, in the piece, Johnson complains about being compared to Trump. I mean, do you think that, that we can talk maybe about the, the similarities in, in next, but I mean, do you think he's sort of right there that actually that his kind of narrative that he's sort of selling to people is more like Reagan than like Trump, that it, it's a smile rather than a scowl? I don't think you can draw too many meaningful parallels between Reagan and Johnson, despite, you know, this kind of cursory parallel that they're both uh, about feel good optimism. And the reason is because each man is such a fundamentally different political character. Whatever you think of Reagan or Reaganism, um, I think it's certainly true that he was imbued with a deep sense of moral purpose, right? He not only took the responsibilities bestowed on him in um, high office very seriously, he also saw his leadership of the United States, especially during the Cold War, as this kind of battle between the forces of good and evil. And his religious beliefs and sense of moral rectitude, I think, imbued his leadership style. Now, compare that and to the kind of serial philanderer, liar, Boris Johnson, who has shown us time and time again that he doesn't have a moral compass at all. Um, yeah, I mean, in the sense that is Boris Johnson an effective political operator? Absolutely. Can he, like Reagan, fill members of the public with a sense of optimism about Britain's future and role, uh, future and its role in the world? Yes, apparently he can. But beyond that, I think comparing Reagan to, to Johnson is really like. Um, Ros, it also says the piece, in the Prime Minister's view, those who wanted to remain in the EU during the Brexit referendum didn't have the courage to tell the real story at the heart of their vision, the story of the beauty of European unity and collective identity, this being a, a paraphrase, I assume. Now, obviously, Johnson also doesn't mention that that, uh, that he lied a lot uh, during the referendum. Maybe that also had an impact. Does he have a point there that Remainers, we certainly tweaked it after the referendum, but not before? Yeah, that is fair criticism. It's a pity in a way, of course, he didn't adopt it himself since he was thinking of backing the Remain cause. He would have done had he thought it was the route to power for himself. Um, the Remain campaign was too easy to characterise as project fear because it aimed to make people afraid of what they might lose. It focused, though, on income rather than freedom of movement and things like that, because we didn't, of course, at the time think we would lose our freedom of movement because we were lied to and told that we would stay in the single market. It didn't play on the kind of mutual trust that makes the invisible hand of the single market work. It made the act of leaving Brexit. It made it seem like a meaningful act of defiance in itself. And that was the key to leave success. Arguably, I think you couldn't have had Brexit. Brexit would not have happened if they had not invented the word Brexit, which put into some sort of vaguely concrete form the the ideas that people wanted to communicate when they talked about leaving the EU. Johnson also talks about, there's a, there's a, there's a speech that's quoted where he talks about feeling pride in Britain without embarrassment, without shame. And that's interesting because I don't think that's something that you would have, uh, that you would have said necessarily in the, in the 60s or the 80s, you know, and it seems to be an implicit kind of critique of, I suppose, what is seen as the, as, as, as the left encouraging sort of embarrassment and shame. I mean, does that kind of, if you were sort of, you know, Labour reading this, would you perhaps 
be be thinking of actually okay well, you know how is a way not to, not to not to sort of do the same version of patriotism but to not be associated with shame which is pretty is is, is a pretty toxic quality uh, in politics yeah i think labor and the left generally find it very awkward to do patriotism performatively in the way that modern politics seems to demand that you do you know as he said without embarrassment without shame you know the flag behind your desk on zoom has become a shortcut for lots of tory mp's to express their patriotism i was thinking about this recently i was watching skyfall the bond movie again that came out in 2012 and M, who's Judy Dench, she has a China bulldog in a Union Jack coat on her desk. And that was that was that was 2012. You couldn't get away with that irony and humour now. It's all very serious and deliberately patriotic. And I don't think Labour is any less patriotic, but it doesn't mm. have those shortcuts to expressing the patriotism that the Conservatives are comfortable with. I mean, my patriotism personally is triggered by, I perhaps shouldn't use the word triggered because it's, it has such negative connotations now, but it's true by less tangible things. And it happens in very often unexpected places and at unexpected times, flags leave me completely cold. And yet I am capable occasionally of being very, very patriotic, but mm. not in these, in these flag-waving ways. Those make me recoil. I can't even explain exactly why they make me recoil, but they do. And of course, that will be that is seized upon that reaction by the conservatives by the right to imply that the left is not patriotic i don't think that's the case we just don't like easy symbols Naomi, we're coming into a phase a sort of post pandemic phase where he might actually have to deliver on what he's promising and that people will notice if there isn't something to back up uh, the optimism the story that he's telling how long do you think he has to actually um, put some meat on the bones. Well, I mean, look, when we look at who else there is and what people think of them, he's doing remarkably well. Um, so, you know, poll out from Ipsos Mori this week, Prime Minister material, agree, disagree. Johnson is way out ahead, ahead of Burnham, ahead of Sunak. Gove is right down on only 13% of people agree he's prime ministerial, 60% of people disagree. So both within his party and from the opposition party, he isn't facing much challenge at the moment. Voters like him, they're sticking with him. In ordinary times, and if the playing field was level and he was being held to the same account as most prime ministers ought to be, yes, you're right, his chickens would be coming home to Reese because the, the levelling up agenda would be exposed for the, the fast that it is so far. The absolute neglect of key sectors uh, and parts of the country in the TCA would be unforgivable and would be noticed. But at the moment, the fact that COVID is still occupying everybody's minds and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any other politician snapping at his heels means I think he's safe. Because the one thing we know about the Conservative Party is as soon as their leader becomes unpopular, they knife them quickly. And at the moment, he's very popular and few of their other people are uh, anywhere close to him in the popularity stakes. So they will not be moving against him anytime soon. Ahead of the G7 summit in Cornwall this week, the member nations reached a deal to tax multinational companies at a higher rate with a global minimum of 15%. Critics have pointed out the deal only applies to companies with a profit exceeding a 10% margin, which will make Amazon exempt because it doesn't make any money, which is why Jeff Bezos is so very poor. 
What will this achieve? And is it possible for world powers to agree on how to legislate against multinationals in other ways? When it comes to big tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google, are the real problems much bigger than taxation? Uh, Nina, as well as a minimum tax rate, the G7 have promised to make companies pay taxes in countries where they sell goods and services, not just the ones where they have their headquarters, which coincidentally seem to have very low levels of corporation tax. How much of a difference will, will that make? Well, it's actually one of the most important parts of the proposed reforms, right? Countries should be able to tax some of the profits made by big companies based on the revenue they generate in that country rather than where the firm is based for tax purposes. And it's kind of outrageous that this tremendous loophole exists right now. Countries, as certain companies can just headquarter themselves in a country with a low corporation tax rate and then pay nothing for the goods and services they sell in another country. I mean, it's an absolute travesty, especially when you think about how much SMEs need to pay in taxation. Many of our listeners will be entrepreneurs. Many will have their own businesses. And you will know from your own experience then that nothing is certain in life except death and taxes, right? Unless you're Apple or Facebook. So it's not only unfair, it's stupid. Moreover, I think it's such an easy political win to tax these companies. So it seems like low hanging fruit. The big question is, what is the enforceability? In theory, on paper, sounds great, right? But whether or not it actually comes to pass, that's a whole nother question. Um, and the Trump administration was actually in favour of some of these uh, measures. But can we thank Biden uh, and his Treasury Secretary for, for actually making this happen at the G7? I mean, overhauling the, the global tax system is something that's so long been touted and it's something that's for so long appeared to be unattainable. So this announcement is undeniably a significant win for Team Biden. And of course, the real driving force, as you mentioned, is the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who's held it as significant and unprecedented. I mean, her rhetoric would have uh, struck a chord, I think, with almost, you know, many citizens and kind of the Western electorates when she said this would end the race to the bottom in corporate taxation and ensure fairness for the middle class and working class people, not only in the US, but around the world. So it is reflective of big ambitions by the Biden administration. I know that it's already come under fire from some progressive quarters as not being ambitious enough. But I think this is a significant win for the Biden administration um, ahead of the G7 next week. And if the G7 have agreed this, what are the obstacles to it, to it actually happening? I mean, does the G20 have to sign off on this and therefore some countries that will be um, perhaps less enthusiastic or, or can, can the G7 just say, well, look, we're just doing this anyway? Many obstacles ahead. I mean, the key issue, of course, is enforceability. Uh, one hurdle is the G20, and that's only the first hurdle. They, they meet next month in Venice. With global agreements and targets like this, the question is always, how do you get everyone on board and how do you get them to play by the rules? The G7 could go ahead even without the G20, and that would still be a significant step. But getting the G7 on board is obviously very important. The biggest mm. obstacle I see is China the second largest economy in the world, a very influential member of the G20, which has amassed a significant amount of wealth 
based on decades of offering generous tax incentives, right? So it's going to need assurances that it can continue such policies if it's going to come on board with this. So uh, the G7 is only the first obstacle in terms of enforceability and getting this over the line. Rod, spokespeople for Google and Facebook, that would be uh, Naomi's best friend, Nick Clegg, um, (laughs) welcomed the move. Is it because they, uh, they didn't really have a choice? Well, it doesn't sound good if you object to plans to make you pay a reasonable rate of tax. So to a certain extent, yeah. But I I think they actually might welcome the opportunity to have their obligations to society set out and to be seen to be paying a bit more tax because it puts the issue which is becoming increasingly toxic to bed. And a lot of people, even working in these companies themselves, are unhappy with the way they're operating and unhappy with the tax avoidance. So it could help to lance that boil. It also means that they have more leverage to work with governments and political parties if they're fully engaged with the taxation system. And there's a great deal of money to be made from that. And there are deals to be cut. You know, there are ways in which they will ensure that they are still getting the best out of governments as they see it by doing deals to have their particularly important warehouse in a particular place. There will be ways around this. But in the meantime, it's fairly good PR to be seen to be wanting to pay more tax. Naomi, Ireland is very attractive to multinationals because of its low corporation tax rate. So it's raised uh, concerns about this. Do you have any sympathy with countries like Ireland? Yeah, I mean, of, of, of course, you know, poor, poor Ireland has been, you know, deprived of its own sovereignty by the British for many, many, many uh, years. And so it's, you know, I think even even Bono has said that he defends the low corporation tax rate because it is a country that had very little means, didn't have access to natural resources. Um, and of course, you know, was was sort of screwed over by Britain for, you know, a lengthy period of its history. So there, there is sympathy there. However, it is now, you know, a much wealthier country than it was and is a significant player within the EU. Um, so I think the times are changing and Ireland probably has to, you know, get, get with those times and change with it. Now we're going to talk about the specific problems with three of the big tech companies. Nina, your specialist subject is Facebook, which you do not use, you pointed out to me. How has the company responded to accusations of, sort of spreading misinformation, polluting politics, a lot of the stuff that, that you cover and that has been um, such a headache uh, for the company over the last few years? Well, they've responded very defensively, but the reality is, if you look at Facebook's record on this, they've constantly lagged behind, they've constantly dragged their feet, and they've constantly only taken action when they have needed to because the public perception has really hit their share price and threatened the viability of the future of their company. Right. I mean, things like when all of the stuff came out around the foreign interference, um, Russian led foreign interference in the 2016 US election, uh, when (laughs) Facebook was actually paid by Russian agents in rubles and then pretended that, you know, they had no idea that this could somehow be a foreign influence campaign is utterly ridiculous. And you even have even darker examples in how devastating Facebook has been as a machine of disinformation and the real world harms that's caused. When you look at cases like Myanmar, where the ethnic cleansing um, against the minority Rohingya, which really took, well, 
a very dark turn in 2017, was in large part driven by the disinformation and hatred which was being spread on Facebook at the time. This was repeatedly being brought up to Facebook content moderators who failed to act again and again to the extent where human rights organizations actually accused Facebook of being complicit in ethnic cleansing and genocide. So there are dozens of other examples that we can look at from all around the world. But I think the top line is, is that Facebook's record on this has been absolutely terrible. They're slow to respond. And it, the cynic in me says, you know, they only take a response when they have to, when things get too bad that they cannot ignore it. And it, I mean, it now seems pretty obvious that it shouldn't really have been allowed to buy competitors uh, like Instagram and WhatsApp. Do you think the next time that they try to acquire uh, a sort of rising company like that, they'll be blocked on antitrust grounds or even, you know, ultimately sort of broken up like AT&T was in the 80s? Well, that's a really interesting question. And of course, that is the path that many kind of legislators and regulators are now starting to think about. If you think about the kind of mammoth rise of these tech companies over the course of the last kind of decade and a half, you know, it's happened so quickly that it's still, we're kind of still kind of reeling in terms of how do you deal with a company that has taken up so much space in the information ecosystem? It's basically like a pseudo state, right? It actually, there are more users on Facebook than to the, the biggest countries in the world. How has one private company, which is responsible to no one apart from its own investors managed to amass so much power and influence. And I think the way to ultimately deal with this, even though regulators are still lagging behind, because that's just one consequence of an information ecosystem and technology that's evolving so rapidly, is to treat a company like Facebook um, as a monopoly and to challenge it on antitrust grounds. But that's going to take some time. Roz, uh, you could do Amazon. I mean, it's so vast, it sells everything under the sun, but it actually makes more of its money from its, its web services. Do you see a, an antitrust case there? You, and, 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 you know, and a particular kind of avenue that that might take that, that might result in either further regulation or, like you said, breaking up bits of the business? Yeah, the problem with these enormous tech companies is that law, existing law, just hasn't kept up with the how innovative they have been. I mean, who could have imagined a company that would have been able to do what Amazon does, even 20 years ago when it was just basically flogging books? It would be possible to set yourself up to trade in a load of different jurisdictions, but take advantage of the tax breaks and low tax regime in another. That wasn't really thinkable because the distribution, the extent of the distribution that Amazon has and the logistics was just not, it was beyond most people's imagination. Walmart or, or Tesco seemed quite big enough and nobody could really imagine anything being much bigger than that. Then, of course, because of the internet, uh, the conditions for world dominance came along. That was compounded by lockdowns and people's need to buy things without being in contact with other people. And so online innovation basically outpaced the law. Now, if you think about whether there's any way in which existing law could be used to go after these companies, the one that most people cite, most lawyers cite most often is predatory pricing. So the way that worked was that and Amazon did this repeatedly with different 
goods and different companies, it sold a product that was pretty much identical to the one being sold by the company it was trying to put out of business. And it sold it at a lower price. It undercut it. The competitor then went out of business or just folded and sold itself to Amazon. And that was because Amazon has such enormous reach that there's no alternative platform that the competitor could use to sell its product. As I say, existing law is arguably ineffective to deal with that because it was written in an era when that was been impossible. But some people do think that's a that represents predatory pricing, a case which companies put out of business by Amazon could use to sue. Um, and there's been a lot of working conditions in the Amazon warehouses. Uh, some of it sort of sparked by the film Nomadland. And there's a report called Primed for Pain, which says that in 2020, for every hundred Amazon warehouse workers, there were almost six serious injuries requiring the worker to either miss work entirely or be placed on restricted duty, a rate that's nearly 80% higher than the serious injury rate for all other employers in the warehousing industry. Do you feel that this is becoming a sort of growing PR headache for them, that, that it's not the, that the problem is new, but that the awareness um, is really growing? Yeah, and it should be a PR problem. It's, it's certainly the case that Amazon warehouses are very much cut off you know from from the rest of society we don't see what goes on in amazon warehouses we tend to drive past them on the m1 where there are some enormous ones and we have no clue what's going on inside there and that is a problem because while another company might have quite transparent retail operations amazon and increasingly other companies that operate in the same way are invisible to the rest of society and i would very much like to know whether Amazon is making staff sign a non-disclosure agreement, for example, if they have one of these accidents, or if they just fear being sacked too much to make a fuss. Mm. I think at this point, the government ought to be making it much easier for people to blow the whistle on conditions in these warehouses. I would like to see a system set up that allowed people to do that easily without fearing losing their jobs. Naomi, you can see us out with Google slash Alphabet. Um, They've just introduced a suite of new privacy controls at a time when Apple is selling itself as the only big tech company that won't abuse your data. Which, what state have we come to? Where it's just, We're the good guys. Oh, yeah, no, we won't. We won't basically spy on you and sell your shit. <laughs> We're the good guys. Um, don't mention how it's all made. Um, am I being optimistic here? Is, is the sort of the heyday, the Wild West of surveillance capitalism coming to an end? Now that sort of privacy concerns um, have been very much mainstreamed. I don't know is the honest answer. I, I want to believe yes, but intuitively it just doesn't feel like it and whether that's because we're all now having to check into every single venue we go to if we you know want to have any semblance of a normal life again uh you know whether it's because every single website you visit is asking to track everything that you do as does every app it seems to me you know it wants to say do you are you happy for us to follow you in the background and see where you go and things you do and and, and it's overwhelming and it's hard to be in control of your own privacy. Um, and I think a lot of these policies are probably designed to say, well, you didn't opt out. We gave you the chance and you didn't, you know. So I think it, it, there's a danger that it, it's kind of like, you know, a, a whitewashing or, or whatever the turn of phrase is going to emerge from the tech journalist world about how these things um, work. So I, I'm I'm highly sceptical that, that we're anywhere near the peak of surveillance society, let alone coming to an end. But I suppose we should welcome some of these moves um, and the 
direction of travel and the zeitgeist sort of being more and more concerned about them. And I think the, the younger generation, the Gen Zers, are a little bit more attuned to it than the millennials and, and the Gen Xers um, and are much more fearful of uh, how their privacy and their online personas could be used in future against them. And so I think have grown up a bit more sort of savvy to some of this than the rest of us who are probably screwed forever and can never run for office or any of those things that, were, <laughs> that, that, that we might have wanted to do because, uh, yeah, Big Brother's watched us too much. I'm spotless, man. There's, a, there's only good shit on my, uh, <laughs> on my social media platforms. <laughs> Primo-grade material. German regulators are having a whale of a time with the new German Competition Act, launching investigations into Google, Facebook, and Amazon. A few months ago, Australia took action against Google and Facebook, um, it was sort of, you know, cannibalizing journalism. Do you think that what's happening is that some countries are going to end up sort of functioning almost as pilot schemes for reforms that could then perhaps be adopted internationally? Yeah, and I think we've seen that that happen with with other laws in the past. So yes, a few good eggs take it upon themselves to do some work, and then other countries follow suit. So hopefully, yes. Um, obviously, we don't know what you know the, those investigations will find, but I'm I'm hopeful that that they will, and uh, you know the, the countries involved have have got a you know fairly decent track record on some of this stuff. So hopefully, yes. But obviously, we would we would need some of the big guns like the USA to get involved to really make a difference globally. Now it's time for Overrated, Underrated, where each week we pick the shrinking violets and Japanese knotweed of politics. Naomi, what do you have for us? Not politics, but uh, at the top of the show, Roz was talking about Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, (laughs) And so I'm going to say underrated, and this is a controversial one, Tim Rice. And I say controversial because obviously he was a Brexiter, former donor to the Conservative Party and I think maybe even UK Independence Party. So he and I have very, very different politics from each other. But I do think that he is an immensely talented lyricist that so often gets overlooked when people are talking about how wonderful Lloyd Webber's musicals are, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, And although I'm very into music, I'm much more of a wordsmith and I have sort of long admired uh, his turns of phrase and how he, he brings songs alive through their lyrics. So I would say Tim Rice, underrated and therefore Lloyd Webber a little bit overrated. You feel really bad for saying that when he's in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time to answer a question from the Oh God, What Now Ultras in But Your Emails. This week, Thomas Lassie asks, I'd like to know your thoughts on the issue of quality in today's political leaders and if slash why we're not attracting the best and brightest to govern the country. The current crop is setting a particularly low bar, but are today's leaders less competent for office than they have been historically? And if so, what is causing this? Yes, they are much less competent. (laughs) So I've thought about this quite a bit and I talked to some of my friends about it. And, you know, we sort of say, oh, you know, average politician is just so low quality compared to even 10, 20 years ago. Why is that? And I think I can pinpoint it as being related to the expenses scandal um, at the uh, mid to late noughties because I think it's so tarnished politics and made it such a grubby profession choice that it really turned off certainly my generation from sort of wanting to be involved in party politics and putting themselves forward Mm. for political office and then I think combined with that 
social media and the intrusion, as we've just talked about in the, in the section uh, before this, uh, you know, the intrusion into our lives and it being such a brutal place, particularly for women, particularly for non-white people, so that it is only really still attractive as a profession to the kinds of people that probably shouldn't have power. Now, that is not all politicians. I'm just sort of talking about that the, the average quality has definitely come down. There are still some brilliant people in Parliament. Uh, Nina, this, I suppose, is a question from a British point of view. Do you think it is particular to Britain, I suppose, looking at the current cabinet, or is, is this a problem in, in other countries as well? Um, I think that it there does seem to be a particular dearth in Britain, and I can speak a little bit to that just because I've had a career in Westminster. My view on this is a lot of the politicians or people who want to be in public life are just really strange. They're odd people. You almost have to want to be a particular kind of sadist or masochist to to want to be in public life. Um, And although that's slightly flippant um, and, you know, there genuinely are very talented people in politics, albeit probably in the minority, I think the bigger thing, and that's what Naomi just pointed out, um, and this actually transcends, you know, Britain as a country, is that the public scrutiny of holding public office, you know, the way that you can be bullied on social media or online, is just too much of a price for many people to want to pay, especially when you consider um, the financial compensation, which is still, you know, high, it's a high salary. But if you are the best and the brightest, and you have a career in the city that will offer you twice as much on like a graduate scheme, then why would you want to put yourself through the kind of public humiliation, the harassment of holding public office? And again, the only people who seem to want to go through that, or the majority of people who seem to want to go, go through that, have a certain type of personality, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're well suited to govern. I think the low quality of politicians is actually a disincentive in itself to getting involved because you see people all the time getting away with being incompetent and increasingly corrupt. Why would you therefore want to join these people and go into it for the right reasons? It's hard to want to see why you want to join this corrupt political class. And as Naomi and Nina have said, as to withstand that abuse when nobody around you is going to be standing up for the right things. It's made politics a toxic occupation, which I think people now actively want to avoid. Well, you say this, but in you know, 20 years' time, you're going to have someone going, well, I used to, I mean, watching Gavin Williamson with my mum and dad on telly, <laughs> and I went, I went, mum and dad, I, I, w- I want to be like, I want to be like him. Uh, that's never going to happen. I mean, it's, it's just like me, I suppose, is when, it, when you're reading that sort of history of sort of, you know, great cabinets of the past. I mean, I suppose particularly um, that kind of, you know, post-war decades of labour generation, they really came from somewhere else and they had huge experience and they've been kind of like, you know, really impressive figures in whether it be the trade unions or academia or business. And everyone had this sort of this backstory, this sort of hinterland. And I suppose, again, focusing on thinking, thinking very much of labor here, but it's the same, it's the same with, you know, something like Oliver Dowden or whatever, is that there was just a whole generation that came through who were like, just started off as spads. Yeah. And that was their only life. And there were very few people that have a kind of you know, a really sort of impressive story to tell about coming from somewhere else. It just seems that they were kind of like lab grown, you know, to be in Westminster. And that doesn't seem to produce 
the best people. And that's the show. Um, my thanks to some of the best people. Uh, Roz. Thank you. Naomi. Lovely to be back on. And Nina. Great to be here. All of whom should be in Parliament sorting <laughs> shit out. On the show last week, Ian said the phrase I couldn't possibly comment was actually code for I have no idea. In the extra this week, four people who couldn't possibly comment about football <laughs> try their hand at punditry and politics uh, in football ahead of Euro 2020. Back us for as little as £2 a month to hear the full episode. You'll get a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and thanks to Viv Huddy, David Thomas, Mark Minto, Paul Wilson and Julio Gotti. And many thanks from me to Katie Maxwell, Luke Boucher, Peter Sutton, Priscilla Hun, and Bartolt van der Vlietti Naomi. Hello from me to David Drury, Gregory Cooper, Sam Potts, Adrian Canibus, Graham Shaw. And finally, thanks to Mike Kidd, Harry Pooley, Mike Bell, Phil Walker and Alex Goodwill. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Nina Schick, Naomi Smith and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Euro 2020 kicks off a year late on Friday, surely the first tournament before which the England manager has felt compelled to write an essay explaining that representing the best of the nation includes the right to express opinions like, say, racism is bad. Naomi, what did you make of Gareth Southgate's article? I think it is absolutely fantastic. Uh, last week, Best for Britain put out an image on the day that he selected the, the final, is it 26, I think, um, <clears throat> showing my lack of football knowledge here. Um, and, and we showed that the squad um, had this great diversity that a significant chunk of the players were actually eligible to play for more than one team. Um, and, you know, asking the question, how many of these players would be playing for England if Pretty Patel's immigration policies had been in effect when their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents came to the UK, would they have qualified? Were they sufficiently high skilled? Did they have enough money in the bank? And so, I, you know, I just think that, that football is somewhere that a lot of people on our side of the debate and in the progressive kind of metropolitan elite world besmirch and dismiss as, oh, you know, football is 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 for other people. And I really want to counter that because I think that football is somewhere where we can win the culture war. And that was a taster of the After Hours lock-in version of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 